Hello everyone, welcome to the Ipsos Politics Talk podcast. My name is Kieran Pedley. Today I'm joined by my colleagues Trin Tu and Gideon Skinner to look at some of the key headlines from this year's annual Ipsos Understanding Society publication. This year's edition focuses on the future of public services, such as the NHS, crime and policing, the future of the UK workforce, and much, much more. Now, our brilliant colleagues at Ipsos have been taking a deep look at some of these issues, including um, interviewing experts on various topics, dissecting the numbers and looking at a deep dive on public opinion on several of these topics, but also analysing the debates around some of the themes that are emerging. There's lots to uncover in some of this, and I'm delighted to be joined by my colleagues Trin Tu, uh, Managing Director of Ipsos Public Affairs in the UK. Hi, Trin. And Gideon Skinner, Head of Political Research. Gideon, welcome. I thought I'd start with a bit of a lay of the land in terms of the political situation, and I guess the the context in which we look at some of these numbers um, today. Um, I don't think it's a surprise to anybody that the mood is pretty pessimistic in terms of the public at the moment. So in our Ipsos political polls, we consistently see six in 10 saying that things are heading in the wrong direction. And that's not all because of public services, of course, but that is a major driving factor to that at the same time. So we consistently see people thinking that public services are in a poor state. I think there's some merit to that. So when you look at the news, there's lots of stories about... um, uh, waiting lists in the NHS being at sort of record highs, um, prisons at breaking point, um, local authorities going bankrupt, uh, schools literally falling apart in some, uh, so, some examples. Uh, I laugh more out of nervousness than uh, out of that being a sort of funny thing. And of course, uh, successive strikes uh, over a period of time, some with more uh, public support than others. The Institute for Government, um, as public, ser- to, uh, public Services Performance Tracker, says that services are in a worse state than they were, um, not only at the start of the pandemic, but much worse than in 2010 before the austerity era, if you can, uh, if you can call it that. And some of these numbers are reflected in the public opinion uh, too. So eight out of 10 say that the government's doing a bad job when it comes to um, improving the NHS. Two thirds think the government's doing a bad job on education and crime. And seven in 10 lack confidence. So this is probably the key number, I think, to, for us all to, to dwell on. The lack confidence in the government's uh, policies, improving public services in the future. And that's the highest number we've seen in two decades of tracking these figures. So it's the, essentially the worst position we've been in. Um, what, where does this all leave us? It leaves us with Labour 20 points ahead in the polls or thereabouts. Um, the Labour Party traditionally trusted more on um, public services than the Conservatives. Certainly on the NHS, they have more than a 20-point lead in terms of which party has the best policies. On the NHS, f- 14 points ahead on education, and we, we could go on. Keir Starmer has promised to um, rebuild a crumbling public realm. This is a somewhat ominous, uh, somewhat ominous phrase. So lots of pessimism out there at the moment. Um, that's reflected in the government's numbers and obviously Labour ahead. But, but Trin, I'll, I'll start with you. Why have we decided to bring all of this together on this particular publication? We always have a choice don't yeah, we, in yeah. terms of what we focus on in a given year. Uh, and I suppose, what are some of the key challenges that we're seeing coming through? Because regardless of who wins, you know, our, our polls suggest it will be Labour next time, but the election isn't tomorrow. Regardless of who wins, they're going to be the same challenges, yeah. aren't they? So maybe unpick some of that for us. If you yeah, so um, 
I mean, we work with all the government departments in public affairs, and it's quite clear from the work that we do, and also from the polling that that we do, the political polling that we do, that actually public services, the 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 um, experience of people on the ground is a little bit different this time around than in previous years. I think mainly because it's affecting all of our lives. Uh, in the past, you might experience it through others, you know, people that you you come in contact with. But if you think about it, you know, you've got kids at school. You need the GP, dentist, hospitals. Uh, you, you know someone who, who needs social care, maybe your parents. So it's actually people are actually experiencing it themselves, which is why I think we're seeing the heightened concerns that we that we've ever recorded in terms of people being worried now, but also worried about the future. Um, so that's one of the reasons why we picked it. Another reason is because some of these challenges are only just going to get even more severe in the future. If you think about some of the big trends that are happening, um, so at the moment, if our public services can't cope with what is in front of us here and now, how will it cope when the demographic change starts to happen and we, you know, the aging population starts to accelerate with fewer working, uh, people? We also have the climate emergency. Meeting our net zero target is one thing, but it's also about adapting. So the big infrastructure work that we're going to need to do as a nation in order to adapt, uh, to climate change as well as meeting our net zero targets. And then we've got disruptive uh, technology as well, which, you know, is a, um, it can really help public services, but it does require a tremendous investment. And also there's big issues about regulations, which we've been hearing a lot about this week at the AI safety, uh, summit. So that's the second reason. And then the third reason is because actually these long-term challenges are going to be quite tricky for whoever comes in to power with no new money. So the Institute for Fiscal Study has already said that there is going to be no more money to spend uh, in real terms. So if the government carries on uh, at present rate for the next spending review, so meeting its NHS workforce, long-term workforce plan, childcare commitments, defence commitments, aid commitments, then you've got all the unprotected departments are not going to get any real uh, increases in their spending. So how are we going to resolve some of these major challenges with no new money? How are we going to do that? So we wanted this to be an opportunity for us to start the debate about some of the solutions. Um, and that's the reason why we've chosen it, um, though it does sound a little bit depressing <laughs> <laughs> um, when, when, we, uh, when we talk about it in those terms. The heartwarming Christmas tale. Yeah, that is us. We are the jolly people. I mean, before we get into some of the, the weeds of, of the publication itself, um, Gideon, on the politics, you and I spend a lot of time going over the numbers here. Um, it seems that there's almost a, maybe a disconnect between the expectations the public have for you know, what, what needs to happen in terms of more money going into public services or what they're, what they're hoping to see from government leaders, whoever wins, and, and the reality of some of these challenges that Trin talks about. So this all feels like it's, it, it, whoever comes in next time, it's going to face a real challenge to sort of meet those public expectations. Uh, yeah, I think you're right, and, and Trin is as well. The the what seems clear now, maybe in a, in a slightly different way to previous years, is that there's no silver bullet to any of this. Um, certainly, as you say, maybe in that mismatch between public expectations and the reality. If you're talking about things like 
funding and the needs for funding. Uh, we know that kind of the, the public maybe are, are open to uh, increased public spending. They want to see increased public spending, um, including on workforce, and they see this as one of the major challenges. Um, but at the same time, given the economic reality, given we know how concerned people are about the cost of living um, and so on, and the impact on their own personal lives, uh, the sort of support for some of the the kind of the, the wide ranging tax rises, for example, that would raise most of the money, and as opposed to measures that are particularly char- targeted just at the most wealthy or, or win- windfall taxes, for example, um, support for those sort of wide ranging tax rises are, uh, are, are pre- is pretty muted. Um, in exactly the same ways, there's not much support for. Uh, big spending cuts that maybe we might have seen in the early times of the austerity period. Now there's much less support for, uh, say, uh, kind of uh, big cuts or freezes on, on, on pay for public sector workers or kind of widespread cuts to public departments. So there's, we're in a different situation now and there's, there's no silver bullet to it all. Mm. So I want to spend some time going through um, some of the things that stood out to to both of you um, in the publication itself and really do recommend going to our website to, to delve into some of this in more detail. I mean, Gideon, I'll stay with you. Um, yeah, what, what, what stood out to you looking through the various articles and interviews that, we, that we've uh, published this year? Yeah, so you're right. I mean, we've got to remember that we've produced like a range of different articles and a kind of a whole different series of public services. So we've looked at health, we've looked at skills, we've looked at crime, we've looked at uh, net zero, um, uh, we've looked at place-based uh, services and so on. Uh, but what we've tried to do is is think about what are the common themes, what are the common issues that are coming across from all of them, and both in terms of challenges, but also potential solutions. Um, and so a couple of the ones that I've picked out, I think was interesting was the importance of fairness um, comes across through a lot of the articles. Uh, we see that, for example... So what does uh, if, fairness mean in this context? Well, so I think it's, it, you know, it's different in different contexts, clearly, but we know that there, it's a uh, it's a big concern, always has been actually a big concern for the British public, especially when it comes to the delivery of public services. Uh, so you might see it, for example, in the context of, of police. Our article on, on policing is about policing by consent. And one of the pillars of that is views of procedural justice, which is sort of sense of are you being treated fairly, which can come across uh, even just in kind of one-off uh, short-term interactions just with an officer, for example. Um, and so we know that's important to the public, but then at the same time, we know that that isn't always the case. And actually, maybe particularly uh, for certain communities, for people from ethnic minorities, the way that they feel treated by the police in those types of situations uh, is very different to uh, others. Uh, and that raises real challenges around perceptions of fairness for policing. Um, we've talked about the importance of climate change and an adaptation approach to, to net zero. Um, and when we've talked to the public about that, what does fairness mean in that situation? It means thinking about uh, the costs of, of climate change and who's that falling on? Are we thinking about the most vulnerable groups and their abilities to to respond to this? It means thinking about how it might interrelate with issues such as locality. I mean, flooding is a, is a big risk when it comes to climate change and adaptation, but many of the local areas that are most at risk of flooding are also some of the most deprived. Um, we can also see it, I mean, we'll talk more about AI and digital, but you know, we can also see it in terms of concerns around that. People are aware of some of the benefits, but what about the risks of maybe bias um, or of different groups who are unable to make the, you know, digitally excluded and unable to make the most of AI and digital options? So we see a kind of fairness as a, as a common theme. And then I think linked to that, 
which is partly a way of responding to it and, and, and dealing with it, um, is the need to kind of engage the public uh, in, in a bit more of a thoughtful approach on developing solutions and, and thinking about the challenges. Um, uh, we've just released something at Ipsos working with Carnegie, um, looking at a, a, a life in the UK index, an index of different types of well-being. And one of the areas in which we score lowest is on what we've called democratic well-being. So issues around, say, participation and trust in key institutions or influence over policymaking. Um, but actually, there's a really an exciting opportunity to use different techniques like deliberation with the public um, to involve the public in, in policy creation. And again, we see that in different examples in the article. So, for example, um, in the NHS, we've done a series of of workshops with uh, Imperial, where we looked at the public, worked with the public on issues such as bringing in digital technology or um, how to uh, introduce issues such as uh, scheduling for emergency care. Um, and actually, in that one, we also brought in the staff as well. So it wasn't just engaging the public, it was also engaging the staff in terms of their response to some of these um, issues. Because some of this, this feels like a lot of when we, when we talk about public service reform, often what people think about is cuts or, or yes, doing things cheaper, but just you know, trying to save money for saving money's sake. And does that make leave a service less well off? But I suppose if you think about healthcare, one of the key changes during the COVID pandemic was the, the tendency to obviously have a, a, an appointment with a GP digitally, right? So uh, um, remotely. So what, what, what are some of the challenges with that though? Because presumably you, you'd say bring, bringing the public with yeah. you is important, yeah. but then at the same time, we know what politics is like you know, uh, different taxes can be a death tax overnight or, you know, you're losing your GP services. So it is a challenge at the same time, isn't it? So what's useful about some of this, and again, sort of thinking about it <clears> forward and, we, and, and how we introduce these things um, in the future, we're going to be doing a bigger program of it with, on the Health Foundation on, on, on bringing the public into healthcare specifically. But say, for example, something like bringing in digital services to the NHS, you can sort of see what the public's expectations are and understand that. So you can, and then respond to that because that raises issues you need to bear in mind. Um, so they see the benefits of it. They see how it can uh, make a difference. But then they're also very concerned about, uh, you know, you have to have a plan B. You have to think about, uh, again, the digitally excluded. What are they going to do? Or staff you. Staff will be able to tell you, you know, it's important to have a, a public communication program so that people know what to expect um, and, and, and issues like that. So it brings in those types of ways of dealing with the solutions. Or uh, a couple of other examples in the in the police, you can talk to the public and about what needs to happen in policing. And they might start off with a kind of TV cop show sort of view mm. of what policing needs. But when you go through some of the solutions and introduce some of the evidence, they become more aware of, say, the need to work with other services on issues such as mental health, which has a big impact on on policing as well. Um, and also on climate change, you can talk to the public about the different types of solutions, maybe interconnected solutions that work best, and more holistic solutions uh, that will bring the public on board um, and uh, and also just develop the solutions in, in themselves uh, as a way of you know, responding to some of these challenges. I mean, just briefly before I bring Trin in, I mean, you talked about fairness at the beginning there. I mean, presumably if fairness is seen as something that's important to people, that would imply at least that there's some unfairness going on. I mean, are there any examples of that, do we think? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, so for example, I talked about some of the challenges that the police have uh, with dealing with different groups. Uh, you know, the, the police aren't dealing with with just the general public, I think is, is a point made by one of the experts uh, in our article. They're dealing with lots of different publics um, and you have to be fair and consistent um, in how you deal with 
all of those groups. Uh, that's an issue. Um, for example, um, in some of our other work, there's there's often real concern for people uh, who are the most vulnerable, um, who for whom maybe the costs of, let's say, climate change might be bear- falling on in particular. So how do you uh, work with them, um, say farmers in rural areas, they're going to play a big role in in adapting to net zero um, and climate change. So can you work with them specifically and come up with solutions and benefits that will benefit those types of groups um, so that it's not just all the burden is falling on them, you're involving them in the in the in in the creation of, of solutions, but you're also working to make sure that they are supported and maybe they're receiving some of the benefits to it as well. Trin, do you have any observations on some of the Gideon, points Gideon's yeah. made before we come on to your No, I, I do. Th- I mean, it's really important. If you think about the the challenges facing government in the future, I don't I don't think there's much, there's not been much at the moment in terms of communicating to the public about some of the trade-offs that we're going to have to make. You know, politicians haven't yet come out clean to say that there's there's no money in the future. How are we going to... Social care is the perennial yeah, one of this, how, how we're gonna How are we going to do this? <clears throat> so I think, you know, engaging the public is one way to find solutions that may be actually out out of the realms of you know the the you know the much more lived in experience solutions but also to take the public along with you on this journey where hard trade-offs are going to have to be made in the future and we need to start talking about that and you know the next the, the general election is actually a very good time i think for whoever wins to actually have this mandate to carry us forward uh, for the future, because the hard decisions will have to be made and they'll have to be lived by society. And it's much easier to get those, um, get what you need done with a mandate. Um, mm. So I think we need to definitely start talking about that a lot, lot more and engaging the public more. Well, that, that requires telling a story going in, yes. I suppose. Absolutely. Yep. Um, so Trin, in terms of uh, what were some of the key themes that emerged for you from, from our articles and interviews? So, I mean, the key one for me is actually how do we do things differently? How do we do things smartly in order to uh, deliver much improved public services given the constraints that we're under? And one of the um, interviews that we did was actually with the West Midlands Combined Authority uh, with Fiona Aldridge, who, who's the head of Insight there. And we wanted to actually see how the West Midlands Combined Authority, who got a... Um, a a new trailblazer devolution deal earlier this year. So it's a bit of a test case. And what that meant was that they were given long-term funding. So operating a little bit like a government department where you actually get money for like the equivalent of the spending review years rather than annually. And they were given freedom to actually exercise how they spent that money. So that is one possible new model. And the current government has already said that, you know, it's committed to giving... um, more de- uh, devolution deals in the future to any um, uh, local authority, combined authorities who want it. So looking at that, that is a possible lesson. And in the West Midlands Combined Authority, what they've done is they've chosen to actually um, deal with skills in a much more holistic way. So if you think about skill, it's not just about giving people the training they need. Actually, it's about, you know, it's about housing. Uh, it's about uh, health. It's about all those uh, about transport. And they've been able to kind of like marry all those services up so that if you, you know, you're looking for a job, you get your training, but actually you can travel to the area where the jobs are. So they're doing it much more holistically and they've got the freedom to be able to do that. And then the other thing that they've been able to do is actually invest in 
um, skills and training that responds to what employers need locally, not just now, but also in the future. So they're thinking about all those economic sectors that's going to fuel growth uh, for the future. And then they're looking at actually people's progression. So, you know, in the future, people are going to have to change jobs and going to have to acquire skills a little bit more. So that's they've been able to look forward and make those kind of um, changes that will allow them to make the economy a, a lot more resilient. So those flexibilities, I think, are going to be really important in the future to be able to do more, achieve more outcomes with the same pot of money. It feels like the education system is going to be really, really important here when we're talking about skills and preparing for the future, you know, maybe rethinking how, from GCSEs to A-levels and, and mm. so on, how that fits in to the workforce and to skills. Because if we're talking about being holistic and how we plan, surely education is going to be a major factor in that too. Yeah, I think skills got to be enormous um, significance in the future. If you think if you've got like uh, normal money, then the only way you're going to, and you don't want to really tax because taxation is already quite high. And, you know, you can tax around the edges, but you can't really do major uh, taxation. So what does that leave you with? It leaves you with being a bit more leaner in how you deliver. That's quite hard given that we've, you know, not really spent much on public services for the past, uh, couple of decades. So, you know, there's not that much meat on the bone for you to actually make those sorts of savings. So then that just leaves you with one thing, growth, which is pretty anemic at the moment. And to have growth, you need investment. And then you, and, and part of that investment is investment in skills because, in, you know, with the technology as well, are our people and our public services able to even deal with the new technology if we've not really invested uh, in technology for the past 20 years or so? So we'll come back to digital in a moment, but Gideon, I just want to pick you up on one one of the points that Trin raised there about um, how we pay for this. Um, one thing that does strike me is that there is a political reality to a lot of these discussions. We can talk about having, you know, great conversations with the public and developing policy at a local level and all the rest of it. But we also, this is, you know, we also know from our political work that the reality of how some of that's presented in the media and how that plays out in Westminster specifically or devolved places uh, can become more tricky. So, for example, you know, pensions and the triple lock would be an example of how you might move some money around, but of course the politics of doing you know, of, of scrapping that would be very, very difficult for whoever the governing party is. So, you know, are we ruling out new money with taxes, do we think? Or is there, is there a conversation around tax to be had as well? Uh, yeah, something for Keir Starmer maybe to answer <laughs> or whoever wins. Um, or we, and, but also we'll, we'll see what happens. Uh, and we're recording this just before the, the autumn statement. So we'll see what happens in the, the autumn statement. Or, you know, maybe there might be some growth or changes somewhere that might, they might be able to find a little bit of money from, from somewhere. Um, I mean, there is, uh, there is a recognition amongst the public, um, around the need for funding and spending. Um, and I think it can, again, it can, comes back to kind of engaging with the public and, and, uh, talking about the, the need for, some of these changes um but yes it clearly would be a tricky topic i mean you know for a start we know that public understanding of the tax system is pretty limited anyway but but, but it's it's not surprising that um there is more support for targeted tax rises on uh on the wealthy for example or on you know very large companies um to, to pay for it more than there is on kind of broad increases on the basic rate of income tax 
say. I mean, mm, you know, yeah. we know we've seen that, but I think there is there, there, the the public mood has changed slightly, perhaps in reaction to to austerity. Um, I mean, I, I think we saw a lot of public spending over the COVID period, and and maybe that that the public took that into account in, initially in terms of dampening some enthusiasm for even more public spending. Again, kind of remembering that we're in a the thing that people are most worried about right now is the economy um, and cost of living. But at the same time, I do think there is a recognition amongst the public. Um, you know, we, we've just done a um, a, uh, a piece of work uh, with Kings looking at kind of, again, a deliberative piece of work looking at the public's views around how to improve the economy and how to kind of engage the public in terms of economic decision making. And one of the themes that came through from that was this idea that the public wants government and public services to be more long term in their thinking they they uh they want uh taxes to support uh small businesses or investment by businesses in long term um projects they want government and public spending itself uh not to be too short termist perhaps they were they were a bit less worried say by borrowing levels um compared with the importance of long-term investment in capital, say, that, that could see a long-term improvement. So I think there are, uh, you know, there is a discussion to be had with the public in that, you know, there, there, there is scope um, within that. Just, just picking up on a, a recurring theme, I think, around doing things smarter, essentially, and the fact that they're, you know, with the best will in the world, there won't be, there isn't a magic, I, I, hate, I hate to say magic money tree, but there, there isn't a sort of a, Hundred billion stuck down the back of a sofa that we're going to suddenly discover. We do have to do things smarter, and one of the ways that we are, that that's often um, expressed is by talking about digital technology. Mm-hmm. Um, it's something that Tony Blair, for example, the former prime minister, often talks about reimagining how public services are delivered and so on. And just looking through some of the articles, one of the things that strikes me is this this recurring idea around AI. The Prime Minister's just had his summit with, uh, where he interviewed Elon Musk, which was an interesting use of the Prime Minister's time. But anyway, um, we all know AI is coming. We all, can, we all can conceptually understand that it's got great benefits, but also it feels like the depth of knowledge about what it's actually going to do and what it's going to look like in practice maybe isn't there yet, perhaps understandably. So... What do we think about some of the work we've done on this Understanding Society publication? Trin, I'll come to you first. In, in, the, in some of these areas, you know, the role of new technology and how public services are delivered and maybe some comments on AI as mm. well. Yeah, so we did. I mean, the, um, so I think the public can see the potentials for AI to improve public services, particularly in, in health, you know, like faster diagnosis. Um, and, um, but at the same time, they are quite concerned about whether we do this responsibly. Um, so some of the issues that, um, that Gideon raised earlier around in terms of being transparent, in terms of tackling um, biases, in terms of fairness, in terms of data privacy. So as long as there was kind of like, they, they, they feel that they were involved and that the government is thinking about those issues, which at the moment, based on our latest polling, they don't think that that's actually happening. They don't think governments um, around the world, including the UK government and businesses, are, are doing enough on the regulation front and that the technology itself is moving so much faster than the ability of, our, of us to of us to regulate it. Um, 
I think on the, in terms of public services, it's also whether we've got the skills and the capability. So personalization is one of the biggest benefits, I think, for public services, the, the ability to actually personalize services so that you can, uh, you can, you can deliver much more efficient, uh, and, um, so what does that mean in practice? Is that healthcare? And, so know. it's like healthcare. Education is an area that, you know, I think has got massive potential to be able to tailor what you, uh, how you do, how you teach, uh, children in school rather than just giving everyone the same thing. You'd be able to tailor that. So that's got huge potential and healthcare, of course, has got huge potential, but that actually requires us to have really decent data on people and to be able to join up our data. And I'm not sure that we have got that across the government departments and whether we've got the skills actually, because obviously these occupations are quite highly paid. There's lots of competition with the private sector, whether the public sector can actually attract the right skills to be able to do the investment that it needs in order to provide a tailored and personalised services for the future. Yes, yeah, so Gideon, one thing that strikes me is we work with data every day, of course, and you know, one of the challenges when you do that is that if you come into a process halfway through and the data wasn't set up in a way that was designed to, to be analysed how you'd like it to be, that can be difficult. So just take looking at that at a grander scale, we've talked about the AI and public services. Obviously, a lot of the systems we've set up haven't been designed with this idea of artificial intelligence coming in. So presumably, there's going to be a huge learning curve, uh, both for the reasons of skills that, that Trin rightly mentions, but also just in terms of how we actually put the inputs in to actually see those benefits, because ultimately... You know, AI can only work with what it can work with, can't it? So it's, it's going to there's going to be some teething problems you'd imagine along the way. Yeah, sure. And um, uh, I think that's that's as Trim was saying, that's that's both partly in terms of organisational ability and and staff and skills <clears throat> levels. Um, but again, you know, to go back to some things we were talking about earlier, it also uh, raises issues around you know potential bias um, and uh, unfairness within within AI if you're working on a data set that has already been set up that maybe has already uh, is subject to certain biases because of the way that it was already set up or thinking about some of the algorithms that AI is working to that's one of the areas where the public uh, wants to wants to see action to make sure that their concerns are addressed um, around these um, but there is there is um, openness to some of the benefits. There is, there are sort of maybe um, at least low-hanging fruits that public services can uh, work on in terms of maybe the way that AI can help um, just with purely administrative tasks. Maybe that saves a bit of time for a GP to do patient-facing mm-hmm. staff uh, uh, work or um, say in um, the public were much more comfortable in the use of AI, uh, say, to help uh, regulate and improve traffic flows on motorways than they are on some of the thornier issues about maybe using AI to uh, involving AI in uh, making decisions about benefits entitlements. Say, but but there are um, there are low hanging fruit that that you, we could start off with to to look for some of those initial improvements, and then it's about how you do it. It's about uh, you know that procedural justice in some ways point I, I mentioned earlier. It's making sure that it's transparent. It's making sure that we're retaining human accountability. So it's not just purely AI making the decisions. There are still sort of human and public sector workers, politicians, um, policymakers involved in making some of the final decisions around this, and it shows that there is still then this this crucial role for the centre as well. You know, what the the public wants to see is government 
taking a, a role and taking a lead on this in terms of setting up regulation, maybe exactly what Rishi Sunak was starting to do with the summit earlier. And also, again, with the summit, you know, working with other governments around the world and working with tech companies themselves um, to start creating some of this uh, framework for regulation to address some of the public's concerns. So that, you know, that, that needs to go hand in hand with realising the benefits. And I suppose there's still trying a human touch to these public services, of course, in, in very obvious ways, but also, I mean, I'm, I'm minded to think of, you know, ticket offices at train stations, you know, it's fine to have the machinery there to, to uh, the ticket machines there mm. to make things move faster. But at the same time, people still want that human yeah. interaction to make sure if things do go wrong with the machine then there's, there's some accountability as Gillian says there so it's mm. a balancing act I suppose yes it, it is and it's also it goes back to the fairness as well actually you know take the ticket machine for instance you know most of us probably don't use it but there are groups in society that do need to use it and the public want those people to take to, to be taken care of and to be taken into consideration um, because ultimately public services is you know is the wider public mm. it's not just certain groups uh, in society so just a final sort of 30 seconds or so each in closing. Um, policymakers that are reading our Understanding Society publication, they're going through the different articles and things. What, what do you think the sort of main message is that you want them to take away from, obviously read all the articles and, <laughs> uh, and share it widely, but what do you think the main message is coming out to this? I think the, the main message is, is that, you know, I'm, I'm actually quite optimistic about the future. We've talked about new ways of doing things, you know, things that are going on in the West Midland Combined Authority. There are lessons to be learned. And then on AI itself, you know, there's, there's a good, the, the, the upside as well in terms of what the public, you know, it's, it's, it's optimistic about, but as long as we address some of the concerns as well. So there are ways of, uh, of navigating the future for public services. But I think the, the key thing is that the, um, we need to have this kind of honest conversation now. Um, you know, the politicians and policymakers need to make clear that, you know, these are hard decisions going forward and start bringing the public along on the, on the journey. Gideon, final word to you. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think, you know, it is clear that many public services are facing some pretty, you know, clear and severe challenges. Um, and also that they're probably things that just can't be solved at the, at the drop of a hat. You know, these are complex, interconnected, interrelated, uh, issues that they're that they're facing and that have built up over time, um, and so you're not going to get an immediate, you know, pull a bunny out of a hat um, solution um, to them all. But then there is a role for public services and for the centre for for national government as well as local government and regional governments to to address some of those. It's about taking that long term approach. Uh, it's about uh, thinking about how different public services work together and, and don't work in silos because that, that you know the problems are interconnected so public services will have to be interconnected as well and then thinking about how you engage with the public and bring and and work with the public and other people like like staff as well and, and the workforce to to both come up with solutions for them but also bring them along um so they're participating in these decisions as well and it's worth remembering with public opinion, as much as the public often will tell us things just get exponentially worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. That's not always the case. Sometimes things, uh, things can get better too. And we'll leave it on that positive-ish note there. So thank you to Gideon and to Trin for joining me on today's recording. Um, hopefully we've piqued your interest to find out more about our Understanding Society publication. You can uh, watch the interviews and read some of the articles on the Understanding Society website. So hopefully you'll do that. But for now, thank you for watching and listening 